Y'all may not know this, but sometimes we post different um, pieces from either the service or from you know, the songs or the message, and uh, we'll track it sometimes, and Laura will get like 3,000 views, I'll get three. Um, and, and it's, it's no, wonder, um, no wonder why. Um, last Sunday, I confessed to not having completed Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, um, but a literary classic that I did complete was F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby. And it's actually one of my favorite novels. I, I like it so much because of its symbolism. I like it because I think the primary lesson behind The Great Gatsby is the wayward, sinful pursuits of humanity. The title itself presents the irony about how often we wrongly define greatness. The narrator of the novel, Nick Carraway, concludes, Gatsby believed in the green light, the orgastic future that year by year recedes before us. It eluded us then, but that's no matter. Tomorrow we will run faster and stretch out our arms farther. You see, Jay Gatsby chased a dream that eluded him. Uh, there's a part at the very beginning of the novel where Nick Carraway first sees him, and Gatsby's kind of like reaching out across uh, the bay towards a green light. And that green light was over a young woman's house named Daisy. Through power, status, and wealth, the great Gatsby envisioned recapturing the love that he had with this woman in the past, but whose voice simply turned out to be a siren. In mythology, a siren would call out to sailors and would allure them with the false hope of beauty and immortality. But their seductive song was always a destructive one. In the end, the great Gatsby, just like the sailors of Greek mythology, proved no match for what preyed on him. Gatsby somehow thought that something in this world, in his case, the woman Daisy, could fulfill him could give him what he most treasured. And I refer to that as something that I might call identity idolatry. He wrapped up his identity in the pursuit of a relationship with a woman instead of finding his identity in Christ. So whenever I have taught my students this novel, I asked them, what is your green light? In other words, what are you prone to chase after instead of the great name and the great fame of Jesus Christ? However we answer that question, we have identified our identity idolatry.
And like Gatsby, if we get caught up in this identity idolatry, sirens will beckon us to our demise. That was the prophet Jonah's issue. Jonah had a siren. Only Jonah's siren was not a person. It was not a human relationship. Jonah's siren was his reputation. I would imagine most of you, if not all of you, are familiar somewhat with the story of Jonah. You maybe know the disobedient Jonah, the one who fled from to go to Tarshish, rather to the place that God had originally called him to go, and because of his disobedience, he was swallowed by a giant fish, or Leviathan. But to best understand the reading that Chris read to us earlier in the service, um, we need to briefly examine the obedient Jonah that's found in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh, proclaim the message I give you. And Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord. He went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days, Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, Nineveh's size was not such that it literally took three days to travel through its city limits, but the Assyrian capital's cultural expanse required time to acquaint oneself with all that it offered. I compare it somewhat to Rome. The city of Rome is not all that large, but Brooke and I went there for our honeymoon as part of our trip, and and I think that she and I both would say that we found that Rome's cultural expanse was overwhelming. I mean, you needed more than just three days to really experience Rome for all that Rome has to offer. Well, God is affording Jonah more than three days in Nineveh. He says 40 more days and Nineveh Nineveh will be overturned. Only things did not come to pass as Jonah prophesied. The message would not fall on deaf ears. The Ninevites repented. In fact, the king of Nineveh says in chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. The king's summons here sounds a lot to me like the mayor from Dr. Seuss's um, Horton Hears a Who. I see Michelle shaking her head. You've read that, that great American classic, as we're talking about classics. The elephant Horton warns the mayor of Whoville of a pending doom for his people. If they failed to make enough noise for the Wickersham gang of monkeys and the two kangaroos to hear them. And as a result, the mayor gets all the who's 
to make as much noise as they possibly can. He runs through the city. He locates every single who, from the smallest who to the biggest who. And he says, you got to hoop, you got to holler, you got to bang, you got to clang. And finally, after all the who's of Whoville sounded their yops, the mama kangaroo, her joey, and the wickershams hear the voices. And they relent of the destruction that they had promised to bring upon Whoville. So too, God hears the hoops and the hollering, the banging and the clanging of the Ninevites. And because they repented in response to Jonah's message, God relents from the destruction he had promised through his prophet. Some people have difficulty reconciling God's sovereignty and his immutability with passages like this. When language such as the Lord relented of that which he was going to do. But that should not cause us any disorientation. For one, since God's nature and being exceeds the understanding of finite humanity, he graciously chooses to reveal himself to us in language that we can comprehend. Moreover, God uses our prayers as well as our testimonies to bring about his purposes in the world. Think about how powerful this is. What we should know is that God uses the prayers of his people to change things. Best we pray. And God uses the witness of his people to bring about change. Best we witness. The Lord of the universe uses you and me to accomplish his will. How humbling is that? But most notably, most notably, we are not God. The manner in which he carries out his perfect will, his unchanging decrees, transcends us. So much so that the king of Nineveh asked the question, who knows? Who knows what God will choose to do? But Jonah says he does know. Or at least Jonah says he knows why. In chapter 4, verse 2, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. So I want you to think about this for just a moment. That which Jonah knows about God's mercy is what causes him to sulk. Most Bible commentators and scholars believe that Jonah responds the way that he does because he disliked the Ninevites so very much. But I personally believe there is something that goes deeper than that. He prays in verse 3, Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. 
Then again, in verse 8, he says, it would be better for me to die than to live. And once more, in verse 9, he says, I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. Would Jonah really have repeated three times that he wanted to die simply because he disliked the Ninevites so much and he did not want God to show them mercy? I am not so convinced that that's all of it. Rather, I contend that Jonah's primary concern is for his name and for his career than he is for God and the name that he is sent to represent. After all, how could Jonah proclaim prophetic authority when the words that he had spoken did not come to pass? In Deuteronomy 18, verse 22, Moses had said, If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is the message the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. Do not be alarmed. So what was at stake in Jonah's mind? His professional career. His reputation. He was more concerned about his resume than he was about all of these people that God had saved. <laughs> that's, that's a lot. Developmentalist David Alkind advances the concept of something he called imaginary audience. And in that, he suggests that teenagers fixate their thoughts on what everyone is thinking about them all the time, about their appearance, about their actions, about their words. Anyone who's ever worked with junior high and senior high students recognize that there is some legitimacy to what Elkind suggests. If a student says something off base in class, he might spend the rest of the day thinking that everybody is thinking about what I said. If a young lady does not have the latest style of clothing, she obsesses over how her peers might perceive her. These students start living for the, for the identity to which they aspire. Sirens like acceptance or admiration or attractiveness or accomplishments. And whenever something or someone disrupts how they wish others to perceive them or define them, they become embarrassed, perhaps even upset. And while I agree with Elkind about teenagers and imaginary audience, I think that our fixation on how others perceive us lasts far longer than our teenage years. At least... That's true of Jonah, and I know it's true of me. Like Jonah, my siren is too often my reputation. Henri Nouwen, in his spiritual journals, confessed, maybe I spoke more about God than with him. Maybe my writing about prayer kept me from a prayerful life. 
Maybe I was more concerned about the praise of men and women than I was for the love of God. Maybe I was slowly becoming a prisoner of people's expectations instead of a man who was liberated by divine promises. That sounds far too much like Jonah, and it sounds way too much like me. I need to be liberated from identity idolatry. The primary lesson, I think, from the book of Jonah is that we need to live from our identity in Christ, not far the way we want others to identify us. We need to live from our identity in Christ, not far the way we want others to identify us. Many moons ago, I taught at Westminster Christian Academy, and I would ask students to do a short presentation for me on who Jesus said that they were. I wanted them to find their identity in Christ, not the sirens of this world. And there are so many sirens that allure young people and old people and all people away from what God would say to us. I still have a video product that a student, Ben Sims, he was in ninth grade when he made it for me. I've shown this piece probably 50 times, if not more. And I want to show it to you this morning. It's empty in the valley of your heart The sun, it rises slowly as you walk Away from all the fears and all the faults you've left behind The harvest left no food for you to eat You cannibal, you meat-eater, you see But I've seen the same, I know the shame in your defeat your neck and I'll find strength in pain and I will change my ways I'll know my name as it's cold again Take what is yours and I'll take mine Now let me add the truth which will refresh my broken mind So tie me to a post and block my ears I can see where those orphans through my tears And know my call despite my faults and despite my growing fears But I
your cave walking on your hands and see the world hanging upside down you can understand dependence when you know their maker's land so make your sirens call and sing all you want i will not hear what you have to say cause i need freedom able to make out from the back, I mean, the scripture verses that Ben had put up um, as he was talking about what he needed to hear spoken over him, rather than maybe what sometimes we hear spoken toward us. And I don't know as well if you noticed the song played in the background. It's a song by Mumford and Sons called The Cave, and there are are some lyrics from that song that go like this. So make your sirens call and sing all you want. I will not hear what you have to say. We need to quit looking for people, and popularity, and power, and prestige, and other such things to define our identity. The way for us, I believe, to overcome our idolatry, identity idolatry, is to stop worrying about what the world thinks of us and start listening to what Jesus says of us. We need to hear what he has to say and not be concerned about what the world might say. It is why I asked Laura to sing the song you say today. I I'd contacted her and she said, well, it's really a hard song to sing, but, but I'll do it. But think about what we frequently dwell upon and think about what we need reminding of today. I dwell on my sin. Psalm 103, 12 to 14 reminds me, I am forgiven. I dwell on my guilt. Romans 3, 23 to 26 reminds that I am justified. I dwell upon my loneliness. John 14, 16 to 17 reminds me that the Holy Spirit lives with me. I dwell on my worries. Psalm 61.4 reminds me that I am protected. 
I dwell on my doubts and my fears. Ephesians 1, 3 to 7 reminds me that I am chosen and I am accepted. I dwell on my hurts. Isaiah 58, 11 to 12 reminds me that I am restored. I dwell on my weakness. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 to 10 reminds me that Christ is strong for me. If your identity is in Christ Jesus, you are adopted as a son and a daughter of the king. If your identity is in Christ, you are a son, a daughter of God. If your identity is in Christ, you are declared as a prince and as a princess. That is who you are. That is who you are. Today, live in the light of your identity in Christ. And do not listen any longer to the sirens of this world. It's not about your reputation. It's about who he is. Wouldn't we look today to Christ and say, that's where my identity is found? Not in this world, but in Christ. Pray with me. Lord, where we sometimes hear voices calling to us that are not good, that are deceptive, that would lead us astray, that would make us believe lies. Today, where that may be the case, I pray by the power of your spirit, you shut them up. That those voices would be silenced and that we would hear from heaven the promise of who you say we are in Christ. That that's where we would find our identity. And so Christ Jesus, for those who need to hear this word today, press it upon their hearts and their minds and silence the sirens. We will not hear what they have to say any longer. But we will listen to you from your word. And we will embrace your promises, Christ Jesus. In your powerful name we pray. Amen. Amen. That we would turn our eyes away from this world and upon Jesus. That's our song of response this morning. We stand and sing together. Turn our eyes upon Jesus.